Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. You and I live in a fear-dominated culture. Uh, According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 32.3% of adults reported anxiety and depression symptoms in the U.S. in 2023. Nearly half of these adults were between the ages of 18 and 24. 38% were between the ages of 25 and 49. 29% were between the ages of 50 and 64. And 20% were over the age of 65. Um, The American Psychiatric Association did what they called a Healthy Minds Monthly Poll and found that the end of 2022, 37% of Americans rated their mental health fair or poor, which was up from 31% the year before. More than one in four, 26%, said that they expected to have more stress at the start of 2023, which was up from 20% from the previous year. And 46.5% of North Carolinians reported feeling nervous, anxious, or on edge at least several days a week. Which kind of begs the question, what is going on? Uh, Most experts in this area attribute the rise in anxiety to what they call techno-stress. This is particularly true among young people who spend more time on their phones than people over the age of 50. What's happened is social media algorithms have figured out what talk radio and television news have known for a long time, and that is the easiest way to capture and keep someone's attention is to make them angry or afraid. But living this way comes at a very high cost, not only emotionally, but also spiritually. As Dr. Dan Allender and Dr. Tremper Longman observing the quote that we put on the front of your bulletin, fear distorts our perception of ourselves so that we seem weaker than we really are. It distorts the size of our problems so they seem huge and undefeatable. But perhaps most significantly, fear distorts our picture of God. God seems weak, uninvolved, or uncaring in the midst of our troubles. After all, we think If he were strong and concerned, he would not leave us in this mess. Fear reverses reality by making evil seem all-conquering and God impotent. Here's why I bring that up. This is the exact situation that's happening in the lives of our disciples in the passage that we're going to look at in Mark today. In Mark uh, chapter 4, verse 35, we read this. On that day, when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along, since he was in the boat. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. He was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. 
So they woke him up and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Now think about who these people were. These very disciples had already seen Jesus do a series of impossible things. In a few short months since they'd started following, they had seen him free demon-possessed people, cure lepers, and heal a paralyzed man. And here they are with their lives on the line after following his orders, and they're freaking out. Now, to be fair, Jesus had led them into a terrifying situation. Severe storms are common in the Sea of Galilee, and the reason is because it's this giant lake surrounded by 10,000-foot peaks, and it has a gap in the middle of these peaks. And so cold air comes off of these mountains and mingles with the warm air coming up off the Sea of Galilee and goes through this little valley, this kind of, it's almost like a wind tunnel. And when it shoots across the Sea of Galilee, uh, it can cause uh, really severe storms that could easily capsize small fishing vessels. Now, several of the people in this boat grew up in that area. They were seasoned fishermen who had spent their whole lives on this sea. And so, if they think they're about to die, they're about to die. This is not them being hyperbolic. This is not them exaggerating. It was really that bad. And Jesus, the one who has shown all this supernatural power, is so exhausted after days of healing people and teaching and staying up all night praying about who the 12 apostles are supposed to be and appointing them and calling them to follow him and to get away from the thousands of people that are pressing in on him and trying to take power from him for their own spiritual delivery, well, he is exhausted. He is literally passed out in the stern and is not waking up as waves of water are swamping the boat. That's how tired he is. I love the detail Mark includes in verse 38. He says, he was in the stern sleeping on the cushion. Now, this was probably Peter's boat. Peter was uh, among the leaders of the apostles. He was a fisherman. Um, He's the one that Jesus told, hey, let me get in your boat and pull off the shore. And it looks like this was his boat. So I can just hear Peter, who dictated the Gospel of Mark to Mark, talking about the cushion. There was a cushion in his boat, and Jesus had it. And so here he is thinking, okay, I've taken over this, this, this job. He's told me he wants us to get on the other side. We're in my boat. I've got these new group of apostles. They're in the boat too. Some of them know what they're doing. Some of them don't know what they're doing. I'm going to get us across here when this storm comes up. And then he's like, man, we're in real trouble. And he looks around at the back to see what Jesus is going to do to save him. And he's asleep on the cushion. And it just kind of makes Peter's head explode, right? Like this is, that's like the last thing. And so they ask the question that lurks in all of our hearts when our expectations about how life with God is going to work don't pan out. And it looks like God isn't doing anything about it. Verse 38, so they woke him up and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? 
God, don't you care that I'm not married anymore? God, don't you care that I lost my job? God, don't you care that I am so lonely? Don't you care that I can't get pregnant, Father? Don't you care that I can't pay my, bill, my bills? Don't you care that my child isn't a believer? Don't you care? To which Jesus responds with a revelation and a question. Uh, first, the revelation. Verse 39, he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. To understand exactly what's happening here, we need to focus on that phrase, there was a great calm. Uh, Jesus didn't merely cause the storm to slowly dissipate. He rebuked the wind and the waves as a parent would a petulant child. He told the wind to be silent and the waves to be still, and the forces of nature immediately obeyed. It went from gale force winds to dead calm. It went from waves swamping the boat to dead still. It was as if God, by the force of his will, flattened everything that was going on. Hence the follow-up question in verse 41. Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Now, the answer to that question was patently obvious to everyone in the boat. Jesus was the creator come to earth. He was God with skin on, the Emmanuel that Isaiah the prophet had promised would arrive a hundred years earlier, God with us, physically exhausted in his human nature and yet omnipotent in his divine nature at the same time. But now it's time for Jesus to ask the questions. Verse 40, then he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? I like the way Luke puts this question in his version of these events when he says in Luke 8, 25, he said to them, where is your faith? Well, where was it? It wasn't in him. After all, all they'd seen and all they'd heard they still didn't trust Jesus. In the heat of the moment, they decided that he only cared about himself. Look at him sleeping on that cushion while we're working so hard to save ourselves from this horrible situation obeying him has gotten us into. He sleeps while we die. And if I'm honest, that reasoning sounds familiar to me. If you've known me very long, then you know that I suffer from occasional bouts of atheism. They tend to pop up any time God allows unexpected suffering to enter my life, particularly if I'm experiencing it for doing His will. It can be anything. My family not paying attention to me the way I want to. My friends failing to invite me to something I wanted to attend. A friend's cancer coming back. Friends losing a baby. Someone I love getting mad at me. And suddenly, like the apostles, I'm wondering whether or not God cares about me. But notice the underlying premise 
of my problem. My operating premise is this. If God really loves me, then he will not allow bad things to happen to me. This is American dream Christianity, built on the false idea that God's love for me requires him to remove all suffering from my life. We are a comfort-driven culture. But what if the premise is wrong? What if God's love not only allows for him to let bad things into our life, but actually requires for him to do so? Right? If you ever have watched any of these documentaries about uh, famous coaches, right, whether it's Bill Belichick or Coach K or, uh, you know, Roy or pick your coach, um, and they're interviewing the players and they're talking about their first day on campus, the first day they show up uh, for, for their first practice at Duke or their first practice at Chapel Hill, they all say the same thing. We suffered, right? We suffered. He had us run. There were, we walked in. The Duke guys tell this story. They're like, we walked into Cameron. We're overawed. We can't believe we're there. And we noticed that there were garbage cans at the foot of the stairs uh, around the gym. And uh, we're like, that's kind of weird. Why are there garbage cans? And Coach K is like, you may begin running now. And they start running stairs up and down Cameron until they've all thrown up. And that's when, they, that's when the run stops, once everyone has thrown up. Until then, everybody's got to keep running. And they're like, okay, why? Why would you do that? And the answer is, this is what it takes to win a national championship, right? If you're going to be great, you have to have a capacity for suffering. You have to have a pain threshold. Uh, and what's true in human endeavors is also true in spiritual endeavors. Um, Jesus' younger brother, James the person who spent the most time of all the Bible writers with Jesus, puts it this way in James 1. This is how he begins his book of the Bible. Verse 2, Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. The simple truth is your God, your Father, your Lord is more committed to your maturity than he is to your comfort. God has good reasons, James is saying, for what he allows to enter our lives. Just because we don't understand what those good reasons are doesn't mean that there aren't any. If God is powerful enough to be responsible for allowing the suffering that we can't stop, he's also smart enough to have reasons for doing it that we can't understand. Both of those things are true. Jesus' life and teaching revealed that faithful suffering is a prerequisite for spiritual maturity and completeness. Consequently, following Jesus requires a willingness to follow someone who is going to lead you into trials on purpose. Jesus put it this way in Mark 8, 34, calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Right? 
This is cruciform living. Cruciform living is excruciating. It is painful. If Jesus was God with skin on, then that meant that the disciples had something in the boat that was even more dangerous than what was going on outside the boat. Look at verse 41. And they were terrified. And they asked one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. When they realized who was in the boat, they understood what Jesus says later in Matthew 28. He says this, Don't fear those who can kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The living God is not to be trifled with. Uh, I like the way Annie Dillard says it. She says, you know, instead of handing out bulletins when you come to church, they ought to hand out crash helmets and life vests, right? Do you understand who, whose name we're so blithely invoking? What if God were to answer? What if he were to talk back to us today? We'd all be flat on the floor, right? We'd all be terrified. Uh, the living God is madly in love with you, but his love is such that it makes him notoriously hard to predict. Um, not only had this God come to earth as a human, he'd intentionally led them into a storm, and he told them that he was going to keep on doing it. Jesus would famously explain this to Peter years later after the resurrection. In John 21, 18-22, Jesus said to Peter, Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk what wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. And so Peter did exactly what I would have done. Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved, that's John, following them, the one who'd leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who's the one that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said, well, Lord, what about him? If I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. Right? Jesus said, hey, don't compare your Christian life to somebody else's Christian life. Don't even do it. Um, you just keep your eyes on me. This is between me and you and what I believe you need in order for you to grow in grace. C.S. Lewis put it this way after the death of his wife in his book, A Grief Observed. He says this, The more we believe that God hurts only to heal, the less we can believe there is any use in begging him for tenderness. A cruel man might be bribed, might grow tired of his vile sport, might have a temporary fit of mercy as alcoholics have fits of sobriety, but suppose that what you're up against is a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. The kinder and more conscientious he is, the more inexorably he'll go on cutting if he yielded to your entreaties, if he stopped before the operation was complete, all the pain up to that point would have been useless. And what's the biggest of all the trials we're ever going to face? Well, obviously, it's the day of our death, right? Don't you care that we are going to die? And God's Word says He does care. Psalm 116, 15 says it this way, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. God is looking forward to the day of your death. 
Because from an earthly perspective, it's as bad as it can get. But from a heavenly perspective, it's the best day. It's like the day your child's born, right? The Bible says that we're being shaped in the womb of creation right now. We're experiencing groans like childbirth. We're experiencing pains and trials like contractions. But the day of your death in the kingdom of earth is the day of your birth in the kingdom of heaven. It's the day when you get to see God face to face. It's a day that he looks forward to. And so, let's go back to the question then of where their faith was. Where exactly was their faith at this moment? Well, exactly where mine is whenever I start questioning God's goodness in the middle of my trials. My faith was in myself, in the way that I was seeing things. Like many of us, they believed that it was possible to live in a manner that obligated God to lead you out of, around, or away from suffering. The trick, though, is this type of faith doesn't actually love or trust God. It trusts in itself. Your faith is in your faith as a means of manipulating God to give you the smooth life our childish hearts think that we need. It's more like a kid being nice to his mom in the grocery store because he wants to get the sugar cereal. But he gets upset when she puts it back on the shelf and grabs broccoli instead. This is why God leads us into storms. He's really committed to our maturity. He's really committed to our growth. Peter eventually would write about this himself. In 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, he said, You may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So, what do trials like these reveal about our faith? They reveal what it's in and whether or not it's real. If you have a false faith in ourselves, like the apostles did at this moment when these trials showed up, well, what happens? Exactly what Jesus had just warned them would happen in the parable of the sower, he explained to them before they got into the boat. Mark 4, 16 and 17 says this, Others are like seeds sown on the rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy, but they have no root, they're short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately fall away. But what if we have a living faith in Christ given to us by God himself? Well, then what happens? Well, we start looking for God's heart even when we can't see his hand. And where do we find it? Well, we find it in the boat with us. Hebrews 2, 14-18 puts it this way, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, Jesus understands what it feels like to be afraid. He sweat drops of blood. Jesus understands what it feels like to be betrayed. He was kissed by Judas and sold out for silver. Jesus understands what it feels like to be abandoned. They struck the shepherd and the sheep fled. Jesus understands what it feels like to be misunderstood. His own family tried to have him committed. Jesus understands what it feels like to be overwhelmed. Because in the darkness of the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why did he do that? So that he could appear to these same apostles after the resurrection and say this in John 20 while they were afraid. John 20, 19 through 22. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them and said to them exactly what he said to the storm. Peace be with you. Peace be still, is what he said. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so... I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Which means you and I have a definitive answer to the question, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? The answer is, absolutely, I do. And how much do I care? I care enough to come down here and to take on flesh and blood so that I can impute your sin and the death and judgment do it to myself so that I could die in your place on the cross and rise victorious over Satan and your sin and your grave and show you my wounds and tell you, peace, be still. I've got this. You can trust me. Even when life is overwhelming, you can trust me. Which is why we've included Heidelberg Catechism question one at the end of your bulletin in the outline. I love this question. When the German church rediscovered the Bible and the Bible first got translated into German, they decided they needed to re-educate all the Christians who hadn't heard the Bible in a long time. They'd grown up in churches where the sermons were in a language they didn't understand. They were in Latin. And so people felt certain spiritual things in church, but they weren't being taught anything. And they had, to, they had to answer this question. Okay, if we're going to teach people the essential good news of the gospel, what's the first thing we want them to know? And this is what they came up with. Question number one. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, 
By his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. And so, as we leave this place today and literally re-enter a storm, know that you're not going alone. Jesus is right there in the boat with us, so we don't need to be afraid. Nothing can touch us except that which passes through his nail-scarred hands first. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the sea. Silent, be still, he said. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he says to you, peace, be still. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our peace, that your presence in the midst of trial, your promise in the midst of loss, your power over sin and the evil one and the grave is our living hope. We pray now by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would breathe on us, you would renew our minds, you would calm our hearts, you would strengthen us to be able to follow you wherever you lead, trusting that these trials have come so that our faith of greater worth than gold can be refined and made perfect. We ask this in your name. Amen.